This is the What Car Podcast covering the latest automotive electrification news recorded Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. Episode 3, the USPS of Podcasts. Boom, episode three. We're rounding a corner. We got two episodes in the bag. Let's go for the, the trifecta, I guess. Let's go for it, man. We're all in. All right. I'm Philip Royal. I am an editor on thewhatcar.com. What pays the bills is my gig as editor of Sports Car Magazine, which is SCCA's publication, and I work for racer.com. And I have a lot of other stuff I have done in the past. On to you, Ed. Ed Sanchez. My day job is um, senior analyst with Strategy Analytics uh, Global Automotive Practice. I complained last week that we weren't on Google Podcasts yet. Now our podcast is on not just Apple Podcasts, but also Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn. The next step is listeners. Yes. And then world domination. As they say, if you build it, they will come. We can keep building. So there's a lot that went on last week, covered Bolt last week. And then literally while we were doing the podcast, I believe Hyundai unveiled a facelift of the 2022 Kona line, which included the EV as well as the ICE versions. It's basically a rebodied car. It's got a new interior, bigger screen. I found listings of Apple CarPlay and Android Auto like they weren't included before. I think they were, but... Yeah. Long story short, TLDR, it's a refresh. So. Yes. Yeah, same horsepower, 201 horse, 258 miles of range. It's going to compete against the Bolt. And unfortunately, I believe they did not alter the price. So that's going to be several thousand, probably five-ish thousand more than the Bolt. So we'll see how that works. Uh, still eligible for the uh, federal rebate, I believe, though, for now. So that will even things out a little bit. Also around that time, McLaren released its first plug-in hybrid supercar. It seems most of what we cover is electric cars, but we are here to cover hybrids, plug-ins, fuel cells, anything that's basically beyond ice. And so McLaren released its first ever, as they like to say, plug-in hybrid supercar. It's not got a V8. It's got a three liter V6, 577 horsepower of that. I think it was 90 397 horsepower of that was electric motor it can go an amazing 19 miles on electric power just don't go faster than 25 miles an hour what wow. a bizarre impressive bizarre, yeah kind of sounds like an us two car yeah yeah we have a plug-in hybrid too it's interesting but baby steps at the same time i don't think supercar manufacturers need to worry about this stuff they can do whatever they want and I'm fine with that. And if you can afford the McLaren at whatever price that was, very expensive. Was it a quarter million? It was very expensive. The flip side of that, Mitsubishi then updated its Outlander plug-in hybrid. It's PHEV, basically very similar to the Kona. Uh, they said substantially upgraded. Their reality was it, it got a little bit more power, a little bit more battery, a little bit more range, nothing of significance. Same price of 36000 just over with a $65, $6,600 tax credit eligibility. I drove one a couple of years ago. It was a thing. I was not impressed. Really quick before we move on from that, I, I think I should um, address this. The one interesting thing about the Outlander uh, PHEV is it actually has a Chatamo port. Um, which is a level three DC charging protocol, if you don't know. It's relatively rare that plug-in hybrids have level three charging. This is one of those vehicles. Interesting little trivia tidbit. So you can do level three charging if you can find a Chatamo charger? Yes. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> because they're, they're going to be fewer and fewer going forward, but that's another uh, podcast discussion. And what there's very few of is the Karma which Karma has also released pricing on its hybrid and EV. And this was a report coming from Green Car Reports. They say Karma Automotive uh, released pricing for its more affordable plug-in hybrid luxury car. The GS6 arrives this month. 
and it starts at 83,900. Very affordable. A, a high performance GS6S starts at 100 and basically 104,000, which is even more of a deal than 84,000. And the fully electric GSE6 model will arrive later this year with a choice between two battery packs, the luxury and long range. And surprisingly, that is the cheapest of the three, starting at 80,000, presumably for the luxury shorter range. The most entertaining part of this release was the Karma Global Sales Chief, and I cannot say his name, Just DeVries, perhaps? Sure. He said, we're not just selling PowerPoint presentations anymore. We're selling real cars. It's starting to feel more like a complete auto manufacturer. And when you have to point that out, there's that's, a problem with your business. That's a real vote of confidence. Uh, we're not it? just doing PowerPoints anymore. Mercedes isn't doing PowerPoints. They're actually producing vehicles. Unfortunately, they're kind of tiptoeing into EVs, not necessarily ICE. They announced in the last week, according to another name I can't pronounce, the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, Ola Kalinius. Sure. Our combustion engine business is extremely robust and produces cash flow that we invest in the future. He thought that what Ford is doing when Ford announced also this week that they're going to go all EV in their European passenger car lineup by 2030, he said, we're going to take a more conservative approach. Basically, ICE pays the bills. EVs, the future is what I got out of what he said. But at the same time, they're not cashing the checks yet on the future. And so I thought it was somewhat disappointing, but not as disappointing as maybe some of the blogs indicated. Being in print media myself, I know the transition from print to online is hard. And I got to believe ice manufacturing to EV manufacturing is just as difficult. To be honest, I think he's just saying in public uh, what a lot of conversations in boardrooms are actually taking place among many automakers. So I don't, I don't know if he's brave or stupid to kind of stick his neck out on the line uh, and admit this publicly, but I don't, I don't think he's alone in terms of a lot of C-suite executives kind of being a little bit on the fence in terms of the business case, you know, saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to kind of gradually kind of work our way into that. He, he followed it up with saying, I think it's too early to definitively say what the market is going to look like in 2030. Which that's a perfectly rational statement. Maybe not to Gavin Newsom, but. Yeah, uh, there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot. And it's, it's scary. This, this move to EVs is scary. And you yeah. just have to look at charging infrastructure right now to see. Which is the big biggie. In my you're opinion. not going to, uh, part of what these uh, companies like Mercedes does is they deliver an experience and you are buying into a luxury vehicle and for them to pump out a car and then say, good luck charging it. It's not a good experience and yeah. it's not going to have great adoption. It will in 10 years, it will be a completely different story, but. And possibly some, some of his uh, hesitation might be on the infrastructure side, as I think is the case with a lot of OEMs that aren't as fully committed as say Tesla. Yeah. Or Rivian. So, you snuck something in at the last minute, right as we were about to hit record on this podcast. And I know nothing about it. Rivian is planning to open an experience sent in Laguna Beach, California, transforming a landmark movie theater into a full-fledged EV community facility. I'm thinking, because that's all I know, is they're doing Rivian's big into off-road. They're making an indoor off-road experience. What are they doing? Uh, okay, so the backstory on this is um, this community theater closed in 2015. They kind of, I don't know, I guess they fell in hard times or just, you know, they couldn't really make it work. So it's been sitting. So the uh, this comes from Teslarati, but um, so it looks like in the plans, they're basically going to have a vehicle in the lobby. They're still going to have a theater, and, and it kind of sounds like they're going to retain kind of the community theater vibe, but I'm sure they're going to use it for product launches, you know, uh, press conferences, stuff like that. Laguna Beach makes a lot of sense to me. It's a very uh, wealthy upscale community. Uh, I'm sure that there might be a lot of potential customers there. So yeah, it'll be interesting uh, 
to see when it finally opens. Do you know anything about this movie theater? Is this an oldie time movie theater where there was just a single screen and that was it? Or is this a larger, maybe not a multiplex or whatever they would call the no, it's just From what I could tell, it's just a single screen. It's, um, I think it was originally built in the 1930s. Yeah. It could be pretty cool. Yeah. Kind of an old timey. Again, I don't know what vibe they're going to go for. If it's going to be kind of, you know, craftsman art deco, or if they're going to go super modern or, you know, whatever. Yeah. If they keep some of the feel, I've been in many bookstores where they've taken over 1920s, 1930s silent movie theaters and uh, made stores out of it. And they're really cool when you go in, if they, if they try to retain the history, we'll see. Yeah. You're nearby there. You're in uh, near fancy Laguna beach. Yeah, I know. Orange County. Uh, (laughs) I'll try to get on the VIP list. Yeah. You can drive your model three down there and see if they let you in. Yeah. They'll probably tell me to park it around the corner. Or you could drive an Ionic five down there. Yeah. Possibly this on Tuesday, February 23rd, Hyundai, Hyundai, you know, the, the, as an aside here, I don't know how to pronounce the company name. I don't know how to pronounce most things. If you can't tell. Well, it depends on where you live and in their video. So (laughs) Hyundai released an Ionic five video. And in that video, the same person, I believe said Hyundai and Hyundai. And I was very happy that, <laughs> that it was said two different ways by the same person. Anyway, I digress. So the quick we already digress- knew a lot about this. We already What's knew that? a lot about the the Ionic Five. Uh, it, was, it was somewhat of a kinda. disappointing. It was somewhat of a disappointing uh, reveal. I thought it was on the EM, uh, eGMP platform. It's 800 volt architecture that was interesting because they said it can support 400 volt and 800 volts. So I figured if something is 800 volt, you didn't have to charge it on an 800 volt compatible charger. I figured anything under it's, but maybe I'm, maybe you know more about that than that. Let's see. It says the U S versions of the Ionic five will be offered with a choice of standard range, 58 kilowatt hour and a long range, 77.4 kilowatt hour. Correct me if I'm wrong. Only the biggest battery comes to America. I believe so. And in That's, fact, the U.S. long-range battery is actually even bigger than what they're going to offer globally. I, I think the global models, I want to say 72 or 73 kilowatt hours. So, you know, the land of wide open spaces, we're going to get a even bigger one. Excellent. I don't believe they released a range, but because uh, everything's been the WLTP uh, yeah, which is wildly standard. optimistic. Yeah, and EPA is always less than that. And I think they've been saying it roughly translates to 300 miles, but that's been on not the EPA standard. So probably sub 300, but over 250. So it'll be it'll be good in the range. Competitive, yeah. The all it'll become in rear wheel drive or all wheel drive. Big Mamba Jamba version is 302 horsepower, 446 pound feet of torque, or uh, was it 232 horsepower for the standard range? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Standard range was 215 horse. Maybe my notes are messed up. It's, but you're somewhere in that range. Yeah. So single motor, uh, 215 horse, 258 pound feet, the dual motor, there's like the higher output and the lower output. They both have a ton of torque, 446 pound feet, which is, I mean, that was like Chevy big block territory back in the day and that's where i was getting confused and this is the interesting thing about electric motors you can have something that makes 302 horsepower and 446 pound feet of torque and something that makes 232 horsepower and 446 pound feet of torque and normally if we would see that i would say one's a gas and one's a diesel here i don't know enough about individual electric motors to know how that works but that's the case with this same amount of torque I, I think it's basically the difference. throttle, the the throttle modulation, and how fast they spin the motor. Hmm. That's probably what it comes down to, if I had to guess. So the the really funky thing about this was its size. We've not really heard anything about its size. It has 118 inch wheelbase. The body length is 182 inches. The width is 74 and a half inches. The height is just over 62 inches. All of that really means nothing until you hear the wheelbase at 118 inches is actually four inches longer wheelbase than the Palisade. 
the body length at 182 inches is five inches shorter than the Model Y and uh, 14 inches shorter than the Palisade. The width at 74 and a half inches is an inch narrower than the Model Y and three inches, three, three and a half inches, inches. narrower than the Palisade. Yeah, and the height though is 62 inches roughly, which is at about an inch and a half lower roof line than the Model Y and uh, six to seven inches lower roof line than the Palisade. The Mach-E has a somewhat comparable wheelbase, but is way longer at 196 inches. I'll tell you what really uh, struck me about um, the Ionic 5. Just looking at it separate from any other cars on its own, it looks like a C-segment hot hatch to me. It looks like you know, a Golf GTI or a Focus ST. Which is but exactly then, what they were going for. They were going I, for their past. Yeah. Um, so, you know, f- f- just looking at it, you'd say, oh yeah, well, that's that's like a golf size car. It's it's quite a bit larger than that. But I think proportionally because they did the very long wheelbase and relatively relative to the wheelbase, overall length is fairly short. And it also has 20 inch wheels. It kind of, kind of plays a visual trick on your eyes, making you think it looks smaller, but very few of the publicity photos had anyone standing next to it. In, no, they didn't the put a banana for scale. <laughs> but they did show the interior, which looks humongous. Completely flat floor. So this is a true yeah. skateboard, not like the uh, GM's Ultium platform where they can place the batteries hither and yon and Porsche does the same trick where they move batteries back and forward to give more foot space uh, in the back seats. This is a, this looks like a, a skateboard skateboard. Flat four. Which gives them a lot of flexibility with, like you say, the interior, the, the center console can slide all the way forward or backward. Basically the front seats are recliners with- Legress. With legress. Yeah. How bizarre. So supposedly that's uh, for when you're charging, but uh, you're, you're not gonna be charging for too long because they're claiming uh, 10 to 80% in only 18 minutes, which is pretty quick. And um, I am a decent Hyundai fan. I own a Kia base model Optima for years as a commuter and bang for the buck. You can't beat it. And I've been expecting similar things from the Ionic line and we don't know the price yet. Uh, We're I think hoping for a sub 40,000 car, at least with the standard range rear wheel drive. And I, that I think would it, be my guess. I, I did see one story. It's kind of alarming if you live in the UK. Um, I guess when you do the currency conversion, it comes out to about $67,000, um, whatever that is in pounds. It's like mid 40,000 something pounds. But yeah. Um, but I, I think there might be some some tax incentives and stuff to lower that a little bit. But uh yeah, if that's going to be a total non-starter if it's that much when it comes to the U.S. At the same time, it's built for the future. I love the Mustang Mach-E, but it's a 400-volt architecture. And yeah. to me, who wants to buy a vehicle and drive it until it's dead, that in itself becomes a non-starter. Yeah. Because I know that in 10 years, I'll regret it and I'll have to trade it in. And I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for bang for the buck. Going back to my Optima comment, my car cost me sub $20,000. I'm a cheap buyer who holds on to cars for a long time. And I think I'm not unique in this. I am part of that crowd that says $40,000 for an EV. That's a good deal. These things were all $100,000 not too long ago, but still 40,000 is too much. And so they're they're coming down in price and with the case with the ionic 5 at 800 volts it's not nothing is future proof but it's more future proof than pretty much anything else on the market right now minus things being built on the porsche platform of the uh, taycan and the e-tron gt yeah now i've heard some some of the you know the peanut gallery saying oh yeah that styling is going to be a big hit in the states because it looks like a hot hatch and the whole premise that you know, Americans don't like hatchbacks and they like SUVs, but I guess my counter to that would be the functionality of it is definitely that of a crossover, even though the styling is kind of more of a hatch, but I think it's handsome. I mean, it's 
you know, it's probably not everyone's cup of tea, but it's sharp looking. It looks kind of uh, golfish. Supposedly the, the concept it was based on the uh, 45 was based on Hyundai's original first car it was called the pony, which was a Korean market kind of hatchback. It's it vaguely resembles it. It's not a literal interpretation to me. It kind of looks like a modernized first generation golf or what they sold as the rabbit in the U S just like kind of ballooned up. I'm like with you on that. I think it looks awesome. I love hatchbacks. Yeah. It, it looks like a sporty little hatchback. I am curious what it will look like on the road. We've seen some spy footage of one on the road. I believe it was in Korea the, and it did look a little large, but until you see it sitting next to something like a Palisade, is this going to look like a gorilla in a tuxedo where it just looks awkward once it's around other vehicles? We don't yeah, know. We'll have, to, we'll have to see in the sheet metal, but you know, initial photos looks cool. Interior looks super practical and comfortable. There's yeah. a screen in front of you so you can see how fast you're going. 3.6 kilowatt power output, which uh, we'll, we'll touch on again uh, later uh, in the yeah, podcast. Vehicle to load, as they say. What we will get to right now is CEO of Lucid, Peter Rawlinson, agrees with me about cheap cars. He, he made a statement saying that the world needs $25,000 cars urgently. Lucid can't do it for another eight years realistically. Wah, wah. So another strike, as we were saying last week, is, is it too little too late for Lucid? But maybe not, because he followed that up saying that the company could potentially have a $25,000 car in the next three or four years by partnering with other manufacturers. And then in the last week, did they actually go public? They... They combined with a SPAC and got $4 billion. Yeah, they're, I believe it's um, the, the SPAC symbol is CCIV. I don't know if that's, I think CCIV, CCIV is listed, but I don't think the official deal is quite gone through yet. But anyway, they're, they're getting on the SPAC train. So I didn't think Lucid would do this. I thought Lucid would go a more traditional route. I don't know SPACs enough. I'm saying that a lot in this podcast. I don't know a lot of stuff. I certainly don't know SPACs, the stock market, and going public. I thought that they were going to bide their time and go slowly, and that was why last week in the podcast I was concerned about this being too little too late with their phase one, phase two, phase three of their production in Arizona. And now they're looking at partnering with other manufacturers to potentially make a $25,000 car in the next three to four years. I wonder if they're feeling the pressure. Yeah, I, I think everyone is. I mean, uh, you know, not everyone's going to make it, but I've, I've, I've gotten on record before saying, I, I think Lucid's legit. You know, they had their kind of motorsports R&D division before they launched the, you know, consumer car brand. So from an engineering standpoint, I think they're rock solid now. At this point, it's going to be all about execution. So whether that's with luxury cars, whether that's licensing their technology, their battery technology to other manufacturers, you know, who knows? I, I even put it out there. They could be a potential partner for the Apple car. I've since kind of changed my tune a little bit to thinking, I think Magna's probably in the, the leading position for that. I um, wondered how ironic would it be if Apple and Lucid both partner with the same company to produce the car and you end up with... Yeah with distant cousins essentially yeah I mean, it's you know nothing nothing's off the table anymore i mean you're, you're seeing all sorts of kind of unusual affiliations and partnerships so who knows what could come of that what is coming is increased ev sales however when you look at the numbers that came out uh, in this last week it, it's interesting this was uh, via tasmanian Com, the U.S. EV registrations hit 1.8% in 2020. 79% of that was Tesla. So basically, they're killing it. Yeah. And that's what you see them on the road. It's hard to disagree with that, and they earned it. Uh, well, especially uh, especially California. I mean, it's they're all over the place. You and I on our street, we have uh, neighbors that just bought Model Ys, so... You can't walk around the block without tripping over a Model Y at this point. And yeah. it's encouraging. 
because we're I'm beginning to see people trade in their BMWs or their Lexuses and now have an electric car. And right now it's all Teslas, but I think with some of the cars that we've got coming, the the guy down the street from me that comes down with his uh, with his F-Type, and you hear that thing coming down the road from a mile away, and it's awesome. When Jag goes full EV, I totally expect him to be sporting a Jag EV day one. I pace or whatever. Yeah, it's well, I don't think he's going to go from his F type to an I pace. He'll go to something awesome. But the rest of the country is uh, not equally dispersed with EV registration. According to this report, the highest location with EV San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, it's San Francisco Bay Area, basically. Yeah, 11%. The Western region of America, 4.8%. So basically, San Francisco and probably LA propping up that number. You go more into the rest of America. You got the Northeast is 1.6% adoption with New York City at 2%. So it's driving a lot of that. The Southeast is 1.1% of vehicles registered in 2020. DC is leading the charge in its area with 2.5%. And the Southwest has an impressive 0.9% EV adoption with Austin at 2.1%. So Austin's like living in California, which makes sense because all the Californians (laughs) moved to Austin. Percentage-wise, we'll see the dispersion of EV adoption climb relative to that. You're going to have the Midwest as the later adopters and the coasts be the early adopters, predominantly the West Coast and the Bay Area. Inevitably, you know, these are going to go up as more models hit the market, more appealing models that, you know, fit people's needs and lifestyle. But, you know, I, I think it's safe to say California is probably going to lead the way for the most part. And then, you know, little pockets of adoption are going to pop up regionally where they're popular and ultimately you know you'll see the numbers go up it's it, it may be a while till we're at like 20 30 percent if ever i, I don't want to say if ever i mean it's i think it'll come but um well by it, 2035 in california unless something changes that number is going to be a hundred percent adoption for well, new vehicle yeah, we'll EV see registration <laughs> yeah. speaking of other states other than california texas and a lot of the Midwest and Southeast was hit with a pretty brutal winter storm. So, you know, I don't have to tell you about it. Uh, sitting here in my uh, flip-flops and uh, t-shirt. Uh, we lived in Texas together. Well, not, yes. we went to college together in Texas. Yes. And it snowed when we were there. It was like uh, one or two inches. It wasn't like at 18 best. inches. Yes. So I anyway, looked at these yeah. photos and it was unbelievable. I lived in Texas for 20 plus years. And I've experienced storms there and snow and ice, nothing like what I was seeing in photos that my friends were posting. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. So uh, I guess the few lucky few uh, F-150 Power Boost buyers that managed to get the brand new truck with the built-in kind of inverter generator, they made good use of it. There were several posts about uh, owners that were able to plug in their refrigerator, TV, their heater, basically powered off the truck, and were able to keep warm and sane and you know informed. Now I don't remember the exact spread of which F-150 has which generator on board, but the power output is somewhere between isn't it 3,600 watts and 7,500 watts, depending on whether you have the hybrid truck or the full gas version. So they have a couple different uh, levels. They have the base kind of entry model, I think is like some like two point something kilowatts. Um, the top of the line model, what they call the power boost hybrid is 7.2. And that also includes 240 volt, 30 amp outlet, which is you know pretty substantial power output. Um, you should be able to power literally your entire home off of that. Uh, almost. I, I don't know if Ford is necessarily recommending that, but that's conceivably you could because the the connection on the truck is an L1430, which I guess is a fairly standard, a pretty standard plug type for um, whole, ha- whole home generators. Um, so conceivably you could. I mean, that would put a, a pretty 
substantial load on the uh, on the system, but uh, you could. Yeah, I have a 3000 watt generator, 3200 watt generator. During our last storms here in California, I was without power for two days and I powered the whole house. I never plugged in the heater, but when I searched for whether it could take it, the wattage is below 3200 watts to turn on my home heater. So I could have done it had we not lived in an environment where it's 70 degrees year round. Yeah. So, so another interesting thing too, is I guess, um, the advantage of this is, as you're well aware, the little portable gas generators can be kind of noisy and modern cars and trucks are, you know, of course, very quiet. The guys that were able to, to use their trucks to power their house said, first of all, you have an onboard 30 plus gallon tank and, you know, the idle noise is relatively low compared to a small gas generator. So they made very little noise. And I think the guy said in the course of 72 hours, it only burned five gallons out of a 30 gallon tank. So you could, you know, conceivably power your house for a week off your truck or more, which is pretty cool. I think this is going to be a huge hit for Ford. I'm sure the Ford dealers are just going to be inundated with potential customers saying, Hey, where can I get one of these trucks? Um, I, I think this is going to be a big, big PR one for Ford. Have they announced whether the F-150 electric will come with a similar vehicle to load-ish a la the Hyundai system? We know very little officially about the F-150 electric other than the fact it can tow a bunch of uh, train cars, <laughs> uh, evidently. My, my guess is it would. If it didn't, now, it's probably going to now. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. In fact, I'm sure um, FCA and GM are scrambling to their drawing boards trying to introduce this for their trucks too because i'm thinking this is might become the new must-have feature for full-size trucks the news of the f-150s having these generators on board dominated my news feed that i ended up having to dig to find tesla news where somebody had a newborn child and he put his wife and the newborn in his was it a model three was it model three or model i think y. it was a model three and turn the heater on and they slept in that overnight to keep warm because it was sub freezing in people's houses not safe for a newborn that can't control yeah. basically can't modulate its own temperature with blankets yeah. and you can't even leave a blanket with them uh, due to suffocation um, yeah. fears and so, tesla has camp mode so they already kind of provision for this for basically sleeping in the car and the other nice thing about tesla is obviously you know, they, they don't give off exhaust fumes when parked in the garage, so. Yeah, and between this and then the uh, Ionic 5, or the whole Ionic lineup, basically anything built off the EGMP platform is going to have their vehicle to load set up where you can power heaters and stereo systems and TVs and whatever you want off of these EV platforms. It seems like potentially natural disasters might look a little different floods different case yeah but power outages might look a little different going forward with all of these the hybrid and electric technologies Possibly. i think in terms of like public perception of electrics i think features like this could potentially be big game changers and, and mind changers for people in terms of the practicality and the usefulness of of this technology now if the outage is long enough, you're still in the pickle of if you deplete all the power of your car's battery pack, then what do you do with the car to charge it back up? And on that note, Tesla also uh, was kind of a, I don't know if I'd say totally unsung hero, but some people that had the foresight to install uh, a power wall system in addition to their solar system in Texas were some of the only people in their neighborhood to have power and lighting. So I think that that got uh, the attention of some people. The video posted online of somebody showing their neighborhood that was all dark and then their house had the security lights on and everything. You're just asking to be robbed. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. You're kind of a sitting duck a little bit. Yeah. Um, but hey, but they had power. That, they had power and it probably got a lot of other people thinking, hmm, maybe I should get one of those, too. Yeah, and a power wall in, in all fairness, power wall is a little more, more difficult to steal. During my two-day outage a month ago, I literally chained my generator up to a wall in the backyard. Yeah. 
and the power walls supposedly are like i want to say about two or three hundred pounds a piece yeah you you're gonna have to be pretty committed to see one of those (laughs) it was interesting this is the first or one of the first natural disasters i've seen where these technologies have been in the news yeah i'm sure it won't be the last time and with all of this though you've got all of these batteries that come with all of this and this is this is the argument that people give of well you're you're killing the the world basically with all the mining and lithium that you've got to dig up and the cobalt and everything is exploiting children yeah it's it's not it's not a perfect technology and and nothing really is a perfect technology but J.B. Straubel, is that how you say his name? Straubel. That's how I, I say it. So, yeah. And uh, Redwood Materials, uh, he wants to basically recycle everything. And he recently got a new contract with a major battery manufacturer, I believe. Uh, one of them was a supplier for Nissan Leaf batteries. Am I completely getting this wrong? No, they, um, the company that supplies batteries for the Nissan Leaf, and supposedly they also, I guess, have a deal with Tesla, which makes sense because Straubel uh, was essentially one of the co-founders of Tesla hmm. uh, with Musk. He was their chief engineer and their CTO for, for, I want to say, almost a decade. I, I know, um, you know, Rawlinson and uh, Straubel might might kind of quibble about who's the uh, quote father of the Model S. Possibly Musk too, but um, uh, he was very very uh, intimately involved with the development of the Model S. But anyway. Getting back on track. Yeah, so CNBC, um, Phil LeBeau, who's their kind of automotive and transportation uh, reporter, um, kind of got an inside look at their um, their operations there. And I guess what Redwood is claiming is they're able to extract the raw materials from these used packs, you know, whether it be cobalt or um, nickel, I guess is another pretty major component in EV batteries. And they say it's it's basically chemically and physically indistinguishable from virgin materials, which you know, which would be mined from the earth. So now it's just a matter of kind of scaling it and getting it to a point where economically it makes more sense to use recycled materials than virgin mine materials. In the interview, he made an interesting and slightly concerning statement. He said a lot of that investment referring to developing new EVs that is going on now with the billions of dollars being pumped into that. He said that a lot of that investment has to find its way into the top of the food chain to figure out where these battery materials are going to come from, investing in new mines, refining, and recycling. It was concerning if he is building his his legacy, if if you want to believe that, that, that Redwood Materials is going to be his legacy, that he is not seeing, by that statement, it implies that he is not seeing anybody investing in new mines, refining, and recycling. And as rich as he may be, you're going to need more than one company. Even Elon Musk says that he wants competition in the EV market space or else he's failed. Well, I think I think it's a kind of a catch-22 right now is you, you can't really have a really robust uh, recycling industry until you have the supply. So as of right now, it's kind of inevitable. You're going to have to have some virgin mining of, of a lot of these minerals to build these packs. But I think the hope is in time as there's more Mach-E's and, you know, Model Y's and Ionic 5's and whatever on the road, they go through their, their lifespan. You know, they get to their end of the life. At some point when you have hundreds of thousands and millions of these vehicles on the road and going through their normal life cycle that you'll have a big enough supply of materials to recycle that the need for mining will be reduced. Yeah. And hopefully in the process, we can also recycle our phones and earpieces and everything else. It takes similar battery technology. Hopefully it all kind of folds together. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, one of the little demo pieces uh, Phil LeBeau was holding up was a, uh, a cordless um, cordless tool battery. So I guess fundamentally it's, it, they're pretty similar. It's just a matter of scale. You know, it's one that's weighs two pounds versus, you know, a thousand pounds. Yeah. So. 
So Toyota is going to fix this problem by holding on to the idea of not doing EVs. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that might be a little harsh, but yeah, yeah I mean they're it, they're kind of. I still think they're somewhat kind of in the denial phase about EVs. So they released in this last week an awesome car, the 2022, or at least unveiled it, a 2022 Lexus IS 500F Sport Performance 5-liter V8, 472 horsepower, 395 pound-feet of torque, which seems slightly puny after we talked about the Ionic crossover. (laughs) With 446 pound-feet. Yes. Rear-wheel drive, 8-speed automatic transmission, which automatics are faster than manuals now anyway. Uh, zero to 60 in four and a half seconds. No price announced on sale this fall. Last hurrah. That's kind of what I'm I'm seeing happening. We saw this. We saw the Cadillac uh, Blackwing models. At least Cadillac kind of came out and basically said, yes, this is the last hurrah. I think Toyota might still be in the denial phase, but GM has already kind of said, we're, we're all in with EVs. This is the last hurrah. Enjoy it while you can. Toyota... I mean, they may surprise us all, you know, don't I think they're a huge honestly, company, but they're, they're kind of sticking their heads in the sand and in, in multiple ways about the whole transition to EVs. I bag on them when it comes to this, but I've had a lot of close relationships with Toyota employees and uh, through my company with sports car magazine and racer.com. I have done a lot of behind the scenes projects, a lot of vehicle launches, and they are very slow movers. It is yeah. glacial, the speed that they run. But what they do is awesome. And they know what they're doing. And there is frustration on the American side that a lot of what's coming over from Japan is not exactly perfect for the American market or maybe even the world market. They're a little bit slow. One of the an example of that was the Camry was took forever. I don't even know if they ended up releasing a non-front strut version, but they were talking about it for at least 10 years saying, yeah, it's coming. And then the new version had come out and it was still a front strut. But I believe with zero evidence to back it up that they are going to hit the market hard with EVs. They are just also very tight-lipped on what they do and what they say. And even in some of the projects that I've had where we did vehicle launches. My company did a vehicle launch for the FJ Cruiser. And even when I was traveling to locations with the newest, latest, greatest FJ that was limited edition or whatever, they still would not tell me what it was until I got to the location and they pulled the cover off. They just don't want people to know. And I feel like we're going to discover in a few years, they'll be late to the game, sure. But I feel like in a few years, they are going to wow us all. It's possible. But in the meantime, they want to try to sell you the Mirai. Yes, they so. do. And the Fastlane had a pretty awesome video about that, comparing the Mirai to the Model Y. And uh, the Fastlane is pretty cool. It's father-son doing these videos. And they each picked a side and played off each other. And it was a fun video that they did. The best quote in it at the end, Tommy the Sun said... If they only built out the infrastructure, the car, the Mirai, would be incredible. And that's sadly what it comes down to. Yeah. And I love fuel cell cars. I think there is a definite future for them if they had infrastructure to go with it. Which is why I think for the foreseeable future, fuel cells will be primarily relegated to the commercial segment. And I stand by that. And I think I will be validated on that view in the long term. Well, now what's interesting in that is not too long ago, President Biden said he's going to replace all government vehicles with EV vehicles going forward. And then Oshkosh and USPS just had a news announcement where they're replacing all the delivery trucks for the Postal Service with a combination of EVs and ICE vehicles that kind of upset a lot of people. In there was no mention of fuel cells. Uh, which would potentially be a solution other than there's no infrastructure going back to what Tommy said. 
Now, I saw a bit of uproar about this and some people saying Biden needs to step in and cancel this deal. Now, Oshkosh is a U.S. military uh, defense contractor, defense contractor yes. and it, they basically make the Hummer replacement. And they're big, awesome vehicles that I'm sure get one mile per gallon, but can withstand <laughs> improvised explosive devices. The The postal trucks look like they've been blown up by <laughs> by an explosive device. They don't look very good from the they're, pictures they're that we've seen. Kind of odd looking. They have these huge upright windshields. Very which, low uh, hood. Yeah, very low hood. Huge windshield, um, supposedly for safety and visibility. They're, they're not particularly attractive. It um, looks like something the Penguin yeah. would be riding in the first Batman movie when he had his little duck and he was riding around. This looks like one of those vehicles. Yeah. It's bizarre looking, but there's good reason behind it. You got to be able to see the mailbox instead of hitting it. It's all about function. Yeah. Um, I saw uproar saying why they need to get Biden to overturn this and go all EV. And then other people said, well, the longest, when you look it up, the longest route in America is somewhere between 170 and 190 miles. And people are saying EVs can do that. And my contention is, no, they can't. Because when you look at it, one of the reasons they've been, they've been trying to replace these postal service vans for the better part of a decade, if not the- So the predecessor the, was the Grumman LLV. The last one I think was made in the late nineties. So the newest one, the newest of the outgoing mail trucks was made in the late nineties. That's how old they are. And they apparently don't have air conditioning. No. So or airbags or a lot of things. Side windows. They're yeah. missing a lot of, a lot of things. So now you've got 170 to 190 miles and that's somewhere in the Midwest where it will get cold during the winter and it will get warm during the summer. You've now got, say, 100 worst case scenario, because I saw, I believe the U.S. Postal Service listed as 170 something miles as longest route. There's an NPR story where they interview the driver of this route, who incidentally does the route in a Ford Ranger, not in an official Postal Service vehicle. And he listed it as, I believe, 186 or 187 miles. And then the 190 mile number that I saw was, I assume, some people just rounding up from that. But you're in an area where you're going to have long, higher speed, sustained speed uh, travel between houses. It's not crawling like an individual neighborhood, and EVs don't particularly do as well on open road, uh, the higher load of higher speed, especially these with a giant upright windshield. Aerodynamics are not, are not their friend. Yeah. And one of the things they wanted was to introduce things like air conditioning. And if you're in an area that you need air conditioning or heat, you're going to use those. So now you've got hot weather or cold weather, which impact battery and potential distance. You've got air conditioning or heater that impact the distance that you can go. You've got many things working against you that unless they put in, they have a version that puts in a hundred 150 kilowatt hour battery into the car, uh, into the delivery truck. Cause these, these aren't going to be lightweight necessarily either. Mm -hmm. You're simply not going to get the range or just get it. So what's interesting about this is I guess one of the conditions uh, they put on Oshkosh for this is that they be adaptable for both internal combustion or electric and that down the road, potentially the internal combustion models could be retrofitted for an electrified powertrain. So the hope is that as the technology matures and improves, power density of the batteries improves, that the ones that were originally built with an internal combustion engine could be retrofitted with an EV powertrain. At least that's the hope. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing is, is on these super long routes, probably in some pretty remote rural areas, EVs hate cold weather generally, you could be kind of pushing it. And never mind the fact, I mean, with a full load of mail or packages or whatever, you're going to be putting a lot of load on this vehicle. So, you know, let's say 230, 250 miles, it may be rated that, but in cold weather with the heavy load, I mean, you could be like barely coasting back into the, to yeah. the uh, post office. 
And the next issue that I see is if you instantly went and replaced all these with EVs or did a fast rollout of the mail trucks with EVs, you have to follow that with a charging infrastructure at every postal service. I, I actually think that could be done rather quickly as long as it's level two. I mean, level three is a whole other level of complexity and cost, but in terms of level two uh, charging depots at, at post offices, I think that could be rolled out relatively quickly. A lot of extension. Well, at least initially, yeah. <laughs> I, I would imagine they'd probably partner with like EVgo or or um, ChargePoint to outfit the uh, post office, um, you know, the parking depots for these. You know, I, I think to electrify part of the fleet makes complete sense to do the whole thing and just try to do that across the board for every use case. We're not there yet. No, and the fact that they're designing these, Oshkosh is designing all of these vehicles to be retrofit. So what starts as an ICE vehicle can end as an EV. Yep. And if the past is any indication, they're going to be driving these things for the next 40 years. Possibly. So they will certainly be updated or changed or engine swapped or something. Maybe they'll all have LSs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> LS everything. We'll see, see these at the drag strip in 30 years. Yeah. Hey, that mail truck. Have you seen that mail truck that goes to the drag strip? There's an LS <laughs> yes. swap mail truck. That's, That's pretty wild. Yeah. So I think that just about wraps up everything. I'm, I'm worn out. Uh, I think we could call it a day. I think we might have uh, gone a little over an hour once again. We're doing good. We're chopping this down. We're chopping it down. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're trying but uh we're the usps delivery truck uh, podcast where we're doing it in incremental steps <laughs> we deliver for you eventually <laughs> yeah so thanks for tuning in for episode three you can find us on facebook and twitter at the wad car you can subscribe to our podcast now on any of your favorite podcast players or just go straight to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, tune in. If there's something else that you would like us to register our podcast on, shoot us an email at hello at thewattcar.com. And while you're emailing us, tell us what you think. Feedback. You want to be on the show? You got anything you want to hear our perspectives on? Can't wait for episode four. Yeah, I'll talk to you next week. All right. <laughs>